Welcome to The Playlist Podcast, a weekly discussion of films and TV. I'm your host, Charles Barfield, Managing Editor of The Playlist. In this episode, I'm presenting a recent interview I was able to have with writer, director, showrunner Elgin James. Elgin James is the co-creator and showrunner of the hit FX series Mayans MC. A spinoff of Sons of Anarchy, Mayans MC recently wrapped up its third season and tells the story of a Southern California Latino motorcycle club that deals with all the drama of being outlaws combined with the family trauma from their home lives. And in my interview with James, we dive deep into season three of Mayans and more importantly, how he brings his own history to the story. For those unaware, James came up in the punk rock and hardcore scene in Boston in the 90s and 2000s. He made a name for himself as the leader of a gang, which eventually led to his arrest and sent him to prison right after his first feature film premiered at Sundance in 2011. From there, Elgin James has worked to shed that past and is now the showrunner of FX's Mayans, where he's able to bring all that firsthand knowledge and trauma to the screen through his characters. Fair warning, we do cover the fallout of season three, which just ended, so there are some spoilers in our discussion. But if you're a fan of Mayans and or interested in hearing about James's past and his inspirational rise as a great writer and filmmaker, this interview covers it all. But before I transition to the interview, I got to tell you that the Playlist Podcast is part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which includes Be Real, The Fourth Wall, Deep Focus, and more. And if you want to find us, you can check your podcast app of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher, or anywhere else you find your favorite shows. Okay, so with that out of the way, stick around for my interview with Mayans MC co-creator and showrunner, Elgin James. Enjoy. So I want to thank Elgin James for joining me on the Playlist Podcast for a discussion about Mayans MC. I'm a huge fan of the show and your work, so I'm really excited to get to speak with you. Uh, thank you, man. I'm so fired up about this. This is awesome. Good. So I want to start with a congratulations because Mayans was recently picked up for season four. And that's great news. But watching the finale and seeing how you ended season three, <laughs> I got to imagine that you knew the the season four was coming, or at least you were confident enough because that's a hell of an ending. Yeah. You know, like I was just saying, like, if you have any ideas of how I can get out of that, please give me a text or <laughs> slide into my DMs because uh, we'll have to figure it out. But yeah, we didn't know. You know what, man? This was this season, we knew it was our one shot. We knew we only had one shot at it. And um, and we knew we had to just leave it on the field. And we got each other all fired up through the hiatus. You know, J.D. Pardo, who plays Easy, you know, he and I talk basically every day, just getting fired up. And he was just like, we have to fail. And that's always been our thing. We have to fail. It's okay to fail. And, um, and so we did it. I mean, and then we have, you know, we had COVID. We had all these other, you know, like a lot of other productions. We had a lot of challenges and obstacles. But man, by the end of it, like we were, I mean, it was, I mean, I had shot and I shot, I directed five of the episodes. So after 91 straight days of production, like we were all just, we were dead. Like we'd left it on the field and our last day was just such a shock. And I remember just saying, I can only say the same thing. It was like after being in a car accident, I kept being like, you know what? We said we'd do it and we did it. And now it's up to the world, you know, now it's up to the world to see what they think. But we said, you know, we did what we said we would, um, and then it was really interesting, man, because then uh, the world didn't care. I wasn't expecting that. All of a sudden, you know, the, we start premiering and we lost like half our viewership. And I, I'm like, oh, man, I have to really, really believe in what I said. Like we said, this is what we're going to do. And it was OK to fail. And creatively, we knew we hadn't. We knew we created something deeper. We, we knew we knew we created what we'd all as friends and collaborators and artists had been talking about for four years, we'd finally done. And, and then that was a wake up call. I'm like, Oh, that probably was it. That was our one shot. 
I'm so insanely proud of it. But then you also feel terrible because I'm like, I sort of like led this charge of like, this is what we do. We'll read out our hearts. We'll go be, we'll be more grounded. We'll be more truthful. Um, we'll show our truth and, you know, and the world will respond. And then the world responded with like, by not watching. And I was like, oh shit. Okay. And then we've been so lucky as what we hope is like word of mouth and word of mouth has come. And we've started to build a whole new audience and the numbers have come back, you know, not tenfold because that'd be an exaggeration, but our numbers are now great. Our ratings are great. And uh, so it was, it was, it was a well process. So we didn't know if we'd ever get another shot. That's a very long answer uh, to say uh, we didn't know if we'd ever get another shot and we took it and now we do. And so we're just going to get, we're just going to go deeper and be more truthful be even more grounded and just lay it all out. Well, so that's, that's interesting because you, you watching that, my wife was like, I have to wait a year now, but like, you know, <laughs> it was one of those things where you watch it and you're like, well, I, I thought, well, Oh, FX told him he knew because there's no way you end the show like that without knowing. And, right. and hearing you say that that's, that's like respectable because you didn't know. And you still had the, the, the integrity to be like, no, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. You know, it, it's like integrity or there's like another I word. Oh, ignorance. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was that, maybe it was that other one. Um, but it was, I mean, we went in uh, because we had basically no hiatus between episode, season two and season three. And I started about just like two weeks after we wrapped season two. And I went into FX and to um, Fox 21, who are now 20th. And I just pitched out the whole season from like the first scene to like the end, the last scene. And uh, so, yeah, we always knew where it was going to go. We always knew these things, but we had the, like I said, the luxury and with the cast, I mean, from the writers to, you know, the crew and to the cast, like we have such a, there's, there, there, everyone talks about, oh, it's like a family. We have a family. We're a family. With us, it's, it's very, it's very truthful. Like it's really true. We've been through so many similar experiences and with Richie, with this talk about Richard Cabral real quick, you know, who plays oh, Coco. God. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's phenomenal. And I met him as a prison reform panel and we had, we're in the green room and it was, it was like uh, with a bunch of really, really smart people. And then Richie and I, right. And Carlito Rodriguez, who's also there, he's, an, he's a phenomenal showrunner and writer. We were talking, we're, we're about to be, and we know Richie, I, you know, I had met him yet before. I was a big fan of his. And we just started talking. He was talking about fences had just come out recently. Right. And what Viola Davis had done, what Denzel had done is like, why can't we do that? Bro? I was like, why can't we do something like that? Why can't we show our truth? And in the same conversation, he then started talking about uh, windows, the windows that are in, in prisons in Southern California. And so it's it was so bizarre to me because I've always kept my world so compartmentalized. I can talk about one thing with friends and then I can talk another thing with my new friends who are artists and we make art and it's very, very different. And he was the first combination of both that we could talk about Viola Davis and how brilliant she is, but we could also talk about those awful fucking, you know, prisons and maximum security, uh, you know, maximum security prisons out here or windows rather. And, uh, you know, they're all just filled with like years of like human residue and just despair and just awfulness. And uh, I was like, bro, you got to be on this TV show that I just, <laughs> that I just co-created. <laughs> and we did, you know, we, we would talk and we'd talk about it and we did the first season and he did phenomenal work in that first season, but we knew it wasn't it. And there's this place, Bright Spot in Echo Park where we'd meet and we'd be like, yo, like you, you did some stuff but that wasn't it. That wasn't the thing. And season two is even less it. 
you know, he was glorified background. And it was just for a lot of my friends around the show that kind of like it was it was tough to watch. I knew what they could do. So season three. So all this to say is that there's this moment throughout season three when I mean, this man lost over 30 pounds. And you he was more, yeah. yeah, dude. And it was more of what even he did physically. He just knew he had to go to this place. He had to go to this, 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 he, as he says, he had to suffer. And, and I was terrified for him, man. It was like, so wild. It's like this, wild, was this knife's edge of being so terrified for my friend. But there's one point when I just made him lift his shirt. We're in meth mountain. I'm like, bro, lift your shirt, lift your shirt. I'm like, you have to eat like this has to stop. Um, but then the other side being so in, like incredibly like tears in my eyes in awe of what my friend was accomplishing because this was finally it, you know, we yeah. achieved it. Yeah, it was. Uh, um, so I'm sorry, man, you keep asking like very direct <laughs> questions and I just take all these turns and no, no, no. Well, well I, I definitely want to talk more about that in a bit, but uh, I, I just to, to move on from season four, because obviously yep. You've made it clear you don't know how to get out of this plan that you've made, but um, <laughs> at least maybe you can tell me, do you guys have an idea when you're going to get back into production? Are you going to have a short turnaround or, or what? Because I know we're COVID have, messed up the release schedule quite a bit. It did. It did. Exactly. So we're going to try to, we can't get on the new, we can't get on our old one because that's in September. Yeah. That's impossible. We're going to try to get as close as we can to that. And so, yeah. So again, each time you're just, when you're working through a season, as you know, everyone knows uh, who's been lucky enough slash uh tortured enough to have to go through one you're just like oh, okay at the end there's like a finish line and each season has been like okay cool you've had a week and a half off now get back to work so we're going to turn around really quick and luckily we, we luckily we knew there was a lot we were trying to lay we had a lot of story from the first two seasons we had to tie up this season yeah and so with a lot of stuff we know we got a pretty clear idea of where we're going to go that's so, awesome. Yeah, we're so excited. before I get deeper into Mayan season three, I yep. want to talk about the first time I heard your name, because technically I knew of you before I knew your name. For those unaware, you kind of came up in the hardcore punk scene in Boston yep. in the 90s. And I actually grew up listening to, to hardcore and punk and really enjoyed uh, like Righteous Jams even. Oh, it's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were a pretty big figure in the straight edge movement right. um, in the 90s and early aughts, I guess. And mm. as someone who's straight edge myself, Nice. And grew up in places that it was completely uncommon and weird to not smoke or drink or go to parties and all that. Yeah, I was kind of obsessed with finding like other people who kind of embodied that. And I was, I guess it was like about more than a decade ago now. There's this documentary that you're part of talking about straight edge. Uh -huh. And I'm like, this guy's awesome. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, this guy seems to be exactly what I'm looking for. You, right. you embodied this idea. And so I always had your name in the back of my head. Fast forward several years ago, I'm reading that Kurt Sutter is developing a spinoff of Sons of Anarchy, and he's co-creating it with fucking Elgin James. I'm like, what? That's so, That's so strange. That's awesome, man. So I was intrigued, to say the least. Nice. And then I found out, I read a little bit more that you moved to LA, you made your, your yeah. indie movie, your, all, all your things that happened uh, a decade ago. And so I'm, I'm curious, I got to ask how a straight edge punk kid from Boston ends up on one of FX's biggest franchises. <laughs> so like when, when Kurt Sutter calls you up and talks to you about this, was there any hesitation or were you like, oh, this sounds awesome? It, there was a lot of hesitation, man. You know what it was is I think, and that's awesome, bro. I'm still straight edge. I'm the same way. Like I just, I'm like, yeah, it's just. I'm it's, old straight edge now. But yeah, like, yeah, I know. Is that crazy how that quickly goes? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that was always so important to me. I mean, I, I read like uh, autobiography of Malcolm X. Like first, I mean, I found punk rock. I'll try to, I'll try to give you for once a very 
clear answer and not go all <laughs> over the place. But again, punk rock, like that's my culture. I always say that. Like it wasn't until minds that people started to call me a Latino filmmaker. And I'm like, wait, that's just a one part of my 23 and me. And that way I'm also an Irish filmmaker and an African-American filmmaker, a native filmmaker. Like I'll be, just, they try to put you in this box and growing up, you know, being mixed of being so many things, like no one accepted me. I was too light. I was too dark. You don't speak Spanish. I was just always outside. And it wasn't until I was 11 or 12 when I first discovered punk rock and then hardcore. I'm like, Oh, this is my culture. So I'm always like, yo, that's my culture that I grew up with. Like that's, that's, that's who I am. I'm a punk rock filmmaker. That'll always be me. And then, um, you know, growing up in a farm and I was, uh, you know, my animals were my only friends. I lived in this little town. I was only brown skinned kid for miles. So then the pigs were my friends, especially Bubba, my pig Bubba. And, uh, and then when I saw the pigs rounded up, including Bubba, uh, to get slaughtered, and I was just like, oh, adults are awful. Humans are awful. And I tried to stop eating meat. I didn't know what vegetarianism or veganism was at that time. I'm just like, I, that's that? Wait, I'm not going to eat that anymore. And then you realize everything they feed you as a kid from hot dogs to marshmallows to jello is all part of this thing. So, uh, but then I discovered punk rock and then you, I get a, a seven inch from millions of dead cops. And it's all about this thing, veganism. I'm like, oh my God. And the same way of just like, you know, of going to, you know, being locked up when I was a kid and reading autobiography of Malcolm X. I'm like, I don't want to, I need to be in control. I don't want to be controlled by other things. Like I want to be free. Like to me, straight edge is being free, right. Yeah. Of these other things. And, uh, and then, oh my God, there's this whole thing in punk. It was like this, is this, this, so that that's always been my culture. And, and then, as you know, I, and there is the other part of it. There's just like a lot of, when you're not safe in your home, I grew up not being safe in my home, like a lot of kids. I think a lot of kids actually from our culture, um, you know, you find that family and other kids in the streets and people that I still love who are my family. And then that turned into a game, right? And that is, even though I was so, I had nervous tics as a kid because I grew up in a violent household and I was so afraid all the time. So these awful nervous tics. And then the only way I kind of overcame those is to become worse than what I was afraid of, like becoming worse of what my father's violence was. And then I got lost in that for decades, decades, man. And, um, and all I wanted, the only thing that was ever my escape was when I would read a book or when I would watch a movie. That was the only way that my mom would point out that my, my tics would stop. And so that was always my escape. So I'm, you know, from Boston where I got this, you know, all my brothers were living in this, you know, 10, probably not 10, like eight of us in a, in a house, you know what I mean? In uh, actually just an apartment, like in a triple decker or something. And I'm so embarrassed that I have these books that I would keep under my things. So I was embarrassed that I would read. I was embarrassed that I found so much solace and comfort in them. I'd lie and be like, yo, bro, I'm going to go off and meet up this girl I met last night. And they're like, yeah, well, you didn't meet a girl last night. I'm like, no, well, you weren't paying attention. I met this girl. And then I'd go to Cooge Corner Theater and I discovered like, you know, I discovered Terrence Malick because Thin Red Line had just come out and all these other things. And it was just this whole private thing for me. And then, um, and I'm like, I just, those are stories I want to tell. I want to be a storyteller. I want to do that. I want to make movies, but I was so caught in this world and beyond like the gang stuff and prison stuff. I think the only thing why I could ever be like, oh shit, that dude did something. It's not coming from that. It's coming the fact that I was in my mid thirties and I was a loser I was in, you know, like I said, I was in a gang. Uh, at that point, there was like five of us living in a house. I had nothing. And I was just like, yo, I'm just, I got nothing to do. I'm going to go do this. I didn't make my first movie till I was 40. Then I went to prison. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. It's all of that. And I was like, I'm never going to tell these stories about violence. I'm never going to do this stuff. I want to, everyone wanted that from me. Everyone wanted this sort of like urban gang story. And I made a small, slow art house film about two 15 year old girls. Um, but talking about my, me and my best friend who'd been in the gang together, that's what it was really about. Um, and going, moving from our small towns to, you know, Boston. Long story short. So then uh, when I got out of prison and you start, you know, I would start out from below zero because I'd already been something. Everyone had already been like, oh, there's this guy who's in a gang and now he's making a movie. And then it was just like, and then I, you know, we premiered in Sundance in March. I mean, sorry. Yeah. In January, I went to prison in March and then it was not what they expected. <laughs> yeah. It was like lots of sun flare and, you know, a 14 year old <laughs> girl, like cutting her leg with self-harm. And, um, and so it was like starting from below zero and trying to find things and you have the right mentors and people take a shot on you, particularly the Sundance Institute. And so then when the Kurt Sutter thing came around to finally answer your question, I wasn't sure. I was just like, yo, that's not the kind of stuff I want to talk about. I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to do that. And then I, I went in to meet him. He's meeting with a bunch of people and we actually had a beautiful conversation. I was like, yo, this is being in a game to me was because I was afraid all this violence today because I was afraid like I got tattoos before everyone in the world had them you know we had them you know from our culture you're either like you're either uh in a gang in punk rock or maybe in the military and those people have tattoos <laughs> or just a low-life criminal you know and that's what you wanted I wanted to be I'm like I wanted to keep people on the other side of the street because I was afraid of them but I wanted them to be afraid of me so they wouldn't come near me because I was terrified of them and then that's, you know, with us with straight edge and like working out and of all these other things that we're into. And then we start the gang and there's something we've been, been powerless your whole life. And you've been told you're a piece of shit your whole life. And then you walk into someplace and they see these, you know, with, with my gang FSU, they see these three initials and then they give you that power and respect, even though it's out of fear, it's for the worst reasons, but that becomes intoxicating for the first right. time. When you don't feel seen, you feel voiceless, you feel powerless, and then you have that. And um, that's what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about all the trauma that comes along with violence, of the body bag of shame um, that I carry everywhere I go for what I've done and for who I was. And that's what I pitched to them. And then for two seasons, it wasn't that, right? Because there, there was a bridge. It became something very different. Yeah. And it was painful. My name was on it. And, you know, obviously Kurt's a brilliant, you know, uh, there's just a difference between Kurt and I as storytellers. There's a glee. There's a glee that he has, even in his violence, there's a glee to it. And that's why people love him. Like think of these awful ways to hurt people. And to me, it's just like, oh, there's just for better or worse, maybe why we lost half our viewers when they first tuned in, there's like a sadness to everything. There's like a melancholy. I can't help it. That's just like what comes out. Cause I know the repercussions. I live so them every I, day. I, yeah, I want to ask you about that because my next question actually was because of your past. Mm -hmm. I watched Mayans. I was a fan of Sons, but like right. I was extra excited because I saw you attached to it. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be different. And the first two seasons of Mayans, while good, they're very much in that same vein as Sons where it's, yeah. you know, the outlaws are cool. The violence is over the top. There's a lot of humor, which is great. But then it's, you know, they're joking about, you know, stabbing a guy or shooting. Yeah, guy, yeah. You know? Killing a mom. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. Sure when season three starts, it's a drastic change. And I think one of the things that stands out to me is that you took that idea of the violence being cool and this glorifying these outlaws. And you've like said, no, this is, this is something completely different. There are consequences. There's, it almost felt like a referendum on the first two seasons. Right. You know? Yeah. 
That's beautiful, so, bro. That's awesome. So I'm, I'm curious, was that like when you knew that you were taking over for season three and you were going to be able to steer the ship Were you like, okay, this is where I want to, I want to, I want to change things just a little to, to show that this, you can still have the violence, but show right. the, the, the negatives. That's exactly, that, that's, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly what I knew. And then honestly, you know, thinking about it is like, that's when I went into pitch FX with Kurt, that's actually what we did now is actually the show that I pitched when everyone's like, Oh, the show has changed so much. Cause there was two seasons, but I'm asked to me, I was just like, Oh no, that's actually what I pitched. I was going to do. And I went in there and I talked about, I talked about, you know, obviously the, you know, the grief of my mother passing away and how that changed my life. But I talked about all the people that I've lost. I've talked about my, my you know, my friends and some of those storylines are in there. The storyline was Steve, the prospect, Ugh, you know, got it. Yeah, man. And Momo just, just killed it. The actor with um, no lines hardly like his his <laughs> final episode is it's just his eyes it's just his eyes yeah, yeah. He, oh he was he's he's phenomenal man it was so um but yeah so that that so i did i knew and there's stuff with richie and richie and i would love richie's had a really incredible life that he's very open about you know and that's that, the thing with richie and i it's like richie and i grew up in two different completely different cultures on different sides of the uh country but we both knew what it's like to be powerless as a kid, to hear your mom being attacked in the next room. There's nothing you can do. We both knew what it was like to be unsafe in your home. We both knew what it is sort of be in this cycle of, you know, of violence and then eventually incarceration. And so there was this shorthand and to see what he did in seven with when he had to kill his mom in a way, which we pitch is like this way of talking about generational trauma and how it gets passed down in our DNA. And but then there was just jokes. Then it was after that, it was just jokes, you know? And that's why I kept, we were just frustrated. We were like, just wait, just give us that shot, man. Give us that shot. And then when season three, he got that shot to talk about it for real. And uh, yeah, so that was always the plan. I had this sort of missive, this uh, mission statement that I made. And one of the things I talked about was how we're going to show violence from here on out as real and visceral. And our show is actually more violent now. There's more, when you have Miguel Galindo, uh, brilliantly played by Danny Pino, Season one or episode for the pilot, I think he, someone's arm gets chopped off, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, shit. But then when he's trying to kill Paco this season and the gun keeps jamming, uh, like that's like, even though it's just, it's, it's much, much, much more violent because it's real. And that's what it's like. Violence and he has that hatred know. in his eyes. Like yeah. the, 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 you mentioned the in season one, the chopping of the arm, it was mm -hmm. done for shock value. I don't yep. even know if there, there was even a, a, a single on his face or anything at that point. Yeah. But this, you're just, you see it from his perspective of him trying to cock that gun. It's like, oh. And the impotence. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing of just the impotence of the powerlessness of this guy because it's like just rage and it's self loathing and it's just all of it. And so, yeah. So again, to give the answer finally 12 minutes later to your question, but yeah, that was, that was always one of the goals. Another thing I noticed with the show is it went from being kind of plot driven to character driven. One of the things I think Kurt Sutter is known for uh, with Sons, especially, but the first two seasons of Minds is this elaborate web of, of moving parts. And, and you mm. kind of strip that back and you, you gave the supporting characters. We've been talking about Coco quite a bit and uh, Steve, the prospect, but even Hank, yeah. Hank gets like a brutal story um, and, and Bishop who, you, who is one of the main characters you would think you yeah. finally learn his, his truth, I guess. So that was, I guess, something that you also had planned. And also there's a cinematic quality to season three. Mm. I think I just want to mention that it, it no longer looks like a, a well-designed TV show. It looks like a long movie, which I, oh. I personally enjoy. 
Thank you, brother. We worked so hard on that. I kept being like, I want this to be a 10 hour film. And we had them part of my mission statement ever was it was my Jerry Maguire moment or something. But like, this is what we're going to do. And um, was all about that. This is what our lighting is going to look like. This is, you know, and, and there's, there's two elements. So there's the element to it of it. Like normally when I'm like, you know, all we did is just give the actors their space. We just turn the camera on and put it on the actors, which is the truth. And um, I was saying to Clayton Cardenas, who plays Angel the other day, he's like, why does this season look different? I'm like, yo, bro, I just, you know, Vanessa Joy Smith, who's this brilliant, she was our camera operator for two seasons. And then she became our, uh, our DP this season and she just killed it. And that's just, and uh, so, and, you know, Clay was like, oh, you're full of shit. I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course, man. We, I wanted everything, you know, Vanessa and I wanted everything to look like a William Eggleston photograph. The lady <laughs> was being an Edward Hopper painting. You know, we do these movements like Bella Tarr, but like, no one cares about that. No one wants to know about that. The truth is, yeah, we set up this beautiful frame, but we made it about the actors this season. Because, bro, uh, Michael Irby, who plays Bishop, came to me, I think it was season one or season two, and he's just like, where do I live? Yeah. Do I have any yeah. kids? Do I have a family? And I was like, oh, fuck, you're right. And you're one of the leads of the show. And so then we created and what he did this season with like with that is just phenomenal with the grief of losing his son. The diner scene is, is oh, gut-wrenching. Bro. And that was one situation where we're just like, we are turning the kid. We started to do the, uh, um, we started to do the read through kind of, kind of like the, uh, you know, just to read the text. And you could just tell they were both in it. He and the actor Alex, they're both in it. And we're just, I'm like, yo, nothing else. We're not rehearsing. We're just going to go. And we just did, we set the cameras. We sent them away, set the cameras up in like three minutes. They came in and that was just two takes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Just two different sizes. I also want to mention, uh, speaking of the supporting characters, um, Taza gets mm -hmm. a, a moment. Well, doesn't get a moment. He gets a story finally, <laughs> kind of yeah. like Bishop. And you, you hear about his struggle with the VM, his former, mm -hmm. his former crew. And at first you're like, what is it? You know, clearly there's bad blood, but the, the surprise I think, you know, is, uh, is, is shocking and, and also really great because it brings in a, a, the sexuality of a of a member of a biker gang, which right. is which is something that I think is 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 pretty crazy. And obviously, we don't know what happens in season four, but I think that's another actor that I think delivers it. And and it's something that I'm curious why you thought like, okay, we're gonna do that with him. Was that always in the cards, or is that something that no. you? Yeah, yeah, that was something because we didn't know why. It was just very different because. Again, Kurt's brilliance is just like, yeah, we're gonna do this, and let's see, let's see what happens, and we'll figure it out later. And and I'm like, I have such, uh, and not to make, not to talk light of mental illness in many ways, but I, I have story wise, I have crazy OCD. So every single thing would had to match up from the funnel cakes and see, you know, I knew that in in one, I was going to come back in five and all that stuff, and um, it's just the way that my brain works. So that was terrifying to me. Um, but that was his thing. And that's how when Taza had killed Riz. So it really became like with the writers, uh, you know, this brilliant writing staff for the first three seasons. And it was just like, okay, well, what is this? And something we always want to talk about writing staff that's absolutely majority female, but is also um, all men of color in there of the men that are in there, the three of us. And when you come, there's this thing that I think that gets sometimes lost in like white culture and like, black and brown culture there is so much so much homophobia there's so much fear and it goes down to being so emasculated for years themselves right so it just becomes it's so deeply embedded and so that just became really into that that just became really interesting and we knew i knew raul who's such a phenomenal actor 
And he was a guy who just brilliantly would just show up and you put his face on camera and he would give us exposition land, you know, and he just would say, he, he and Frankie loyal who plays Hank just gave beautiful exposition for two seasons and they did the role perfectly. So I wanted to reward that. And we knew Raul had the chops and we had the conversation. I had a conversation in the hiatus with all the actors. This is what's going to happen. This episode one, all the way through 10. And, uh, and he was so excited. He was like, he just, I didn't know how he was going to react to it. And he just, oh my God, he was so excited about it. So yeah, so we, we, we figured that out, but we figured it out in season two. Oh, this is where this is going to go. And I directed the finale of two. And that's why there's a shrine to uh, David there. And we sort of planted that just in case we got season three and <laughs> could tell the storyline. But yeah, and he did. And he, that's the thing is everyone, bro, everyone, uh, you know, the, and, the, and the, again, in the hiatus of JD and I, and I would just like, we'd always be talking. I got all the actors together. I'm like, I just pulled everybody's card. This is a shot. You get one shot. I want every scene needs to be like a, like a heavyweight bout. I don't care if it's a love scene. You need to come in and try to annihilate each other, like destroy each other. Like this is there's because we're making we were making art, but there's sometimes that gets lost in this heady thing. As opposed, there's also this very blue collar thing about making art. There's also a very athletic thing about making art. I'm like that's what we need to do. I want you guys to see on screen and try to just annihilate each other and then they did more than i ever could have thought of frankie i mean frankie loyal plays hank like you said he became i mean he became an actor this season and he i hired him because again about our culture he had black flag bars on his arm <laughs> when he walked in the audition before i saw anything else we were talking about patty smith and i was just like oh i don't care what his audition is this guy's gonna be on the show this dude's my homie and what he did this season man wow yeah, yeah. Talk about heartbreak too. It's 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 yeah. his stuff is really sweet. And and when you see him and and his role in the Mayans and and to see such a sweet story, it's 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 yeah. a nice juxtaposition there. But and um, there was there was some pushback a little bit because um, they just don't know this was different territory and the studio and the network were amazing, amazing with us. But there's also this was like, wait, you want to do what? And there's even some pushback initially about Hank going to see his mom. Yeah, I'm like, oh, you don't understand, like. And not negative, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, you know, I'm like, did you think I would go home? I was the biggest mama's boy. We all were, man. You know what I mean? A lot of us, I think the people in that end up in this sort of, I mean, obviously I wasn't in an MC, but end up sort of in this sort of world or like with uh, gangs, whatever it may be, clubs, anything. It's because you didn't have, we didn't, all me and my friends, we didn't have dads, right? Or we had really bad dads. We didn't know what it's like to be a man. So we thought, I thought being a man was like, causing terrible harm to people i thought with was being violent and aggressive i thought that's what being a man was I had no one else to, even though i was raised by these amazing strong women oh i have to be a man i have to do this i have to cause horror and havoc on the world not realizing how much stronger my you know my little quaker mom was than my 350 father in you know, 50 pound father but that's what i wanted to get across like yeah he was one thing but also, it's such a matriarchal society. It's just like to your mom, it's something else. Of course, he goes home and he loves his mom and he wants to let his mom know he's going to be okay. Like, I was in the hospice with my mom when she passed away. I got to spend the last three weeks with her and I was trying to just convince her I was going to be okay because I was just still in a gang then. You know what I mean? I was living, I didn't have a job and uh, I just swore I was going to be okay. I was going to be okay. Like, I was going to figure it out. You know, I was going to figure out, I just had started this dating this girl and I'm like, maybe she's the one, like, I promise I'll be all right. I'll figure myself out. I'll have a baby. I'll do all these things. And it took me a really long time. It took me three more years of trying to get out, you know, leaving Boston, but I just recently made all that come true, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So speaking of, again, your past here, one mm-hmm. of the things I always thought was interesting about having you attached to the show is the fact that the Mayans deal in heroin. 
and mm-hmm. and and they dealt with it in a way like it had been established that if you're a part of you know uh, an MC, you probably aren't on hardcore drugs, but right. you know whatever you you still smoke, you drink, you do all that stuff, you yep. party. But seeing this season and and what happened with Coco, um, and really getting uh, hooked on stuff and and going through the opioid kind of chain was really interesting. And and I saw that and I'm like, okay. I, I think this is Elgin finally laying yeah. out that drugs are bad, right? Yeah, totally. Was that yeah. was that was that the purpose or the genesis of that was to, to give was. weight to this heroin stuff? Exactly, because there's there was no repercussions before. There's no consequences, and it'd be like, yo, man, like our guys deal in heroin. Our country is in an opioid crisis. You know, I mean, this is like it didn't like we need to show the ramifications of that, and that's and again, it's a difference. There's not one better sort of storytelling or one worse sort of storytelling especially with kurt who i owe all this to he's the one who picked me and brought me on you know kurt's someone who's definitely has made the industry you know possibly a billion more dollars than i have you know what i mean (laughs) like he's like kurt is amazing obviously this is just different we're different storytellers we're just different so we're different people um, and I, I wanted to just, I, I just had to tell this. And that was something I was like, I want to, again, it goes back to sort of this like fun that he does, even though like very dark fun. And just, I, I, mean, I just got to show the consequences. I got to show the consequences. And we're lucky that that just coincided with, uh, with Richie, you know, it's yeah. like the perfect vehicle and with his shame and then goes back to what he'd done to his mom in, uh, in season one, and we could talk about the generational trauma and how all these things were mapped out. We're making decisions. You and I make decisions that we think is our free will, but we're really established by people we've never met, by great, 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 great grandparents and their bad and good choices they made, you know, and that's what, that's what we really wanted to get to. And uh, yeah, and drugs are bad. (laughs) (laughs) I I just, I just saw that and I was like, that's, that's good. You know, you know, you know, the show already makes me want to smoke cigarettes because it looks so cool. You got I know. <laughs> Dude, Clayton, Clayton just makes it look cool, bro. I know. Yeah, he does. Know. He does. Totally. He really does. Um, like everyone's using their fake cigarettes. So I was just knowing that. Yeah. And he's actually incredibly healthy and vegan and everything else. So, but yeah, they are definitely, uh, they makes it look cool. Yeah, they do. An- uh, another thing that I noticed differences with season three and, and before is uh, what I call easy superpower. Kurt Sutter in sons he did this too where he would he wouldn't make somebody like supernaturally good at something but like Jax teller always had a plan and was always yeah. like the smartest dude in the room and easy for the first two seasons had his photographic memory which kind of always made him the smartest dude in the room and mm-hmm. i think that season three do a great job uh with kind of stepping back from his memory you mentioned it a couple times i don't know if you ever really used it plot wise even once but you also gave him like ocd uh, yeah. really talked about, but it's there. Right. Yep, um, totally. You also gave him a couple monologues specifically with Edward James almost where he's talking about how he's broken. And, yeah. and I'm curious why you decided to take the, the main character of your show and, mm-hmm. and, and kind of knock him down a peg or two. You know, that, that's a great question. And then I, that was something, there was a lot of discussion with the network in the studio because they wanted to up him. They wanted him to be VP this season. They wanted to show go on the same thing we've seen. He was brilliant and he had this, you know, eidetic imagery. He had photographic memory and everything. And I was just like, first we have to, we've never established JD never even got to show, hey, this is who this character is. Right. He just was, he just he never, I'm like, we gotta, we gotta, it was never interesting to me that he did always have a plan or that he was smarter than anyone else or that he used his memory and it this is not one's better than the war the other it's literally just like your own sort of storytelling thing it wasn't interesting that he could always come up to figure out 
uh, plot stuff. There's always plot stuff, right? And yeah, solve yeah, mysteries. Yeah. It was solving mysteries, uh, which is a brilliant device. It's just to me, I was just like, oh, to like again, because it comes back to yourself, as I think all art should be autobiographical. But then what's beautiful about what we do right, is like it becomes autobiographical. You put it on the page, and then the actors come and they pour their heartbreak and joy and shame into it, and everybody does, and like the crew does, and becomes something that none of you could have done alone. But I wanted to see what it was like if he couldn't forget all the awful things that he's done. I mean, that's what happens to me. Like when I go, oh my God, I can't, there's an incapacity for joy that happens. I think when you've been around a lot of violence and you've lost people and everything else, you've just been part of things or let's say outside of the true nature of who you were born as. I mean, it's PTSD. Yeah, that's exactly right. My wife is a therapist. So like, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's PTSD. PTSD, exactly. That's really, and we try to, even we tackle that a little with Adelita too, just talking about it It really is. And we think PTSD with, with military and that's why it's so great because we have Rocco on the show, right? But it also just comes from, you know, Richie Clay and I talk about it all the time about the things that we've done, things that we've been part of, things that we've seen. It's just like, there is this thing. And so you see, you know, yeah, there's an incapacity for joy. There's a numbness of like anytime you try to feel something good. And that's why having kid all of a sudden is, is, is different. So you have to, I got to let go of that. So I don't pass that on, but that's what I wanted for that. He wouldn't allow himself to, to ever feel joy in the whole relationship with Gabby. And that became really interesting. So that's what we did. So it was, yeah, it was definitely, um, and you know, uh, JD and I talk about it all the time of who this character was. Cause a lot of ways, this was like our first season. Right. You know, I think Kurt did a great job because he wanted to bridge it and he did it in a way that was really successful because the show was really successful for his first two seasons. I think for the rest of us, it was more of like, oh, no, now this is because, I mean, honestly, for those first two seasons, my name was on it and people would say, oh, it's so amazing. your show." I'm like, I had nothing to do with it. I mean, I did. I created the characters. Kurt and I created the world. But it was really like, yeah, my name's on that script. Like, I don't think my periods or commas were. And and not in a negative way, but it was just like, oh, I can't really take your praise. And then finally, when, you know, those were like, you know, our words, and then you lose half your viewership, you're like, oh, damn, okay, I guess I knew what they're doing before. But we're lucky, like I said, like a new audience has come. But yeah, that was one thing that we always that I always knew I wanted to do is just basically recreate who easy was and just go just to go deeper, just to go deeper yeah. with them, man. So there's a there's a line and and I think it kind of sums up the whole season in our discussion. And it's something I wrote down because it was something that I was like, oh, this is awesome. Which you have, a, you literally have a character, a son's character. Well, no, maybe it was a mine, maybe it was Alvarez, who says to somebody, he says, you know, you're, you're dishonoring the legacy of Jax Teller. And somebody whispers to Gilly, I think, and says, who's Jax Teller? And Gilly says, who the fuck cares? Or who gives yeah. a fuck? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and to me, that just, I was like, I saw that and I laughed because I'm like, oh shit, this is like a meta thing, I think. Like right, this is right, him yeah. saying like, yeah, that was cool for the first two seasons, but this story isn't Jax's story anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it was so. funny that there was a lot of bad, like people were really, really upset about that. And what's what's funny is that we, so what people love about Kurt's writing is just how it was such a middle finger to the world, right? Right. That was Kurt's, that's Kurt's personality. That's who Kurt is. Um, and that's what Sons was. But I think with the first two seasons, we were forced to sort of genuflect. We were forced to get on our knees and, you know, put Jax Teller's name, which just, which just actually would not happen. Like from this rival gang, you know, five, however, 400 miles away, I'm terrible at geography, but far away, would not be talking about with this, that that was that. And 
And also I think for the actors, there's always the shadow for the show. There's always the shadow. And it was just like, yo, those guys did an amazing job. Like Charlie. I mean, I love Tommy Flanagan. You know what I mean? Like that dude's like my dude, yeah. like in real life. You know what I mean? Like DL, like Charlie's such a great guy. I'm so these are really good people and artists who did something really, but that's not what we're doing. We want to do something different. And yeah, like this is our this is our space now, man. Like love it or leave it. Like we gotta, we gotta, and it was actually in the spirit, as less as an insult, is more like in the spirit. I will tell you that there was there was a, all of the guys wanted that line. Rocco got it, <laughs> gave it to Rocco. <laughs> But I'll tell you, and again, it wasn't as like a fuck you, but it was just like, yo, this is it. This is our flag, man. Like, who yeah. gives a fuck? This is our show now. That's awesome. So uh, switching gears a little bit, yeah. you mentioned this earlier. You said uh, you're a punk rock filmmaker. And and I think that term gets thrown around quite a bit. You see like these guys or girls, uh, filmmakers mm-hmm. without naming names, who are just like kind of edgy and they'll say like, oh, yeah, I'm a punk rock filmmaker. Oh, yeah, right? totally, but I think totally. I think for you, it obviously, as we've established it, it kind of fits. Like there's really no other way to describe it. So what do you think that that punk rock attitude really brings to your projects? Like just in general, is it is it more of a DIY thing or is it more of a, you know, is the emotions or what is it? Yeah, it is so funny how that gets so torn around. And it's so funny. There's when people even talk about being punk, they have no idea that there is this anytime any actor, anyone comes up with it. There is this chain of people texting, calling, are they, is this real? <laughs> Oscar Isaac just said he was punk. And then it's like, everyone goes through this thing, call them the phone. They're like, okay, he was in a Trying to find band. his, uh, his garage show picture. Like, where was, yeah, totally, exactly, exactly. he wasn't in the basement. So I, I was, I was there. Exactly. And then you have someone like Patty Jenkins, who was yeah. like, she was part of that scene. I saw the minor talking. threat poster in Wonder Woman. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, John Joseph has crazy stories about Patty. Like she used to be able to hang um, and she <laughs> can still hang in a completely different way. You know what I mean? Right. So it's funny, like even culturally, like I would never go see Wonder Woman normally, but I went to the theater to see Wonder Woman. Cause I'm like, Oh, she's from my culture. Like I represent. And also I was such a huge fan of monster, but I think it just comes down to just that, it's the same way of like growing up and hating country. Like I hated country. As I say, I'm wearing a George Jones hat right now. I realized <laughs> I could myself through Zoom. Um, Speaking of, co- just just a side note, the music in season three is fucking incredible. Oh, thank you, brother. Yeah. yeah. So I just, I had to say that because the, the music was something I wasn't really keen on in seasons one and two, yeah. but good job. That's awesome. And our composer, David Wingo, is someone I've been trying to work with forever. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He got nom- Emmy nominated for, he's worked with David Gordon Green forever. Yeah, he's phenomenal. But I think it's just, it's just this, um, it's just a, it's two things, man. It's just this, it's a lot of things. It's uh, one, I'm trying to find the right words to do it. This broken hearted nihilism they try to bring. And that's just true. No matter what you touch, I think that's a heartbreak we talk about, but there's just a broken hearted nihilism. It is this sort of like grounded truth. It is a sort of just like, fuck it. This is it. Bring it. Um, you know? And then I think it's, it's like with country, the same thing of just like, you have people just telling stories. You have people telling stories and that's what punk rock was. You know what I mean? Like people yeah. telling stories about being down and out and just truthful in the street. And it's like, I think about the, uh, um, you know, the filmmakers uh, that I love and it's just, it's all of, uh, um, there's a lot of that. So I think what it is, it, it, it's even hard to say. It's just, I feel it in my gut right now. That's the thing. I'm trying to feel it because it's in my stomach. It's like in my fucking belly right now, but it's just trying to, I went to the Sundance Institute and everyone there, I got to be a Sundance fellow, which is amazing and life-changing for me. And everyone had already done films. Everyone had like an MFA. Everyone was just like, they were artists as they were. I mean, I was, I was there with, you know, 
I was there for a really good year and everyone people got their films made and it was really, really brilliant people. And um, like Ben Zeitland, the BBC of the Southern Wild, like it was a very, it was a big class. And you have me who didn't know anything. I didn't know what a <laughs> gripper or a best boy was. And so I was really intimidated. I'd never gone anywhere without a weapon. My whole, like anytime I traveled and I was packing to go to Utah and I had a padlock and, uh, and, a, and you know, you put in a sock and everything and I was in a band or a bandana and I had those and I was just like, it sounds funny now, but at the time it was really traumatic for me. I'm like, I probably shouldn't bring this. Like, no. I'm probably not yeah. going to get in a fight with Caleb Deschanel. You know what I mean? Or, like, or Robert Redford. Robert Redford, exactly. <laughs> and um, and so I didn't, but I felt really, really naked. And then I went in there and everyone's smarter than me. That's just the truth. It's not being humble. Like all these people are 10 times smarter than me. And what do you do then? You shut down. And like, yo, fuck these people. They've had their whole lives. They've all that bullshit, this victim mentality. And I really try to push myself try to push myself out of it but it's more of my mentors it was michelle satter who runs it and she said i was like yo i don't know any of this stuff i don't know anything i'm a fucking idiot and she's like you know punk rock so like you grew up punk rock so you know when something's a lie you feel it in your gut she's like hone that let everyone else worry about what the color of the palette's going to be let everyone else worry about that you just try to find it and so that's what it comes down to i have a feeling that i've been and it really comes from her and her generosity of sit there when I'm going to, I can sit there, even in a scene when the actor's crying, we had a scene where an actor cried and it was beautiful and everyone applauded. It was one of those moments of the crew. And I was just like, yeah, that was bullshit. That was bullshit. It was a lie, you know, but only I could tell my eyes were telling me one thing. And I want to be part right. of the group, but it's just thing in your gut of like, oh no, fuck that. That's a fucking lie. And that just comes from growing up with punk rock. That just comes from where we come from. You know That's what I mean? Awesome. So uh, just real quick before I let you go, I got to ask you, do you feel like you belong now? Uh, no, no, no. no. I, I mean, because because we, we I, mean, I joked about Robert Redford, but yeah. he stood up for you and wrote like a glowing yeah. like recommendation for you and, and, and other people did too. So you are part, you are a showrunner of a major FX series, but you know. I think what's cool is you find other people are still just like from our world, man. It's like with punk rock, like everyone were sort of just like broken misfits, like broken, no matter what your socioeconomic background, no matter what it was, you ended up here. There's something beautifully broken about you, right? That you're going to get fixed through music and through the scene. Um, and you find that in film a lot. And I think in, in, in television, even the executives, man, but there is a thing and uh I won't punish you with another long, another long answer, but there was a, there was a uh, moment we were hiring for season one writers. One of the first people uh, I was meeting with, and I was talking about that. Like, I still, I still feel nervous when I would go to, you know, this was Fox um, and walking through and you feel like everyone thinks I'm going to steal something. You know what I mean? You just don't feel right. And they put you in a thing and you just feel like, oh, you just, you're just so, I'm just so grateful to everyone that I'm there, but I'm also like, oh man, I don't belong here. And he was like, you need to get over that. He's like, you need to own it, man. He's like, you need to own this up. This is your space. And I was like, oh yeah. And it kind of sat with me really weird and really weird. And it took me, I wrestled with it for a couple of days. And I was like, you know what? I don't ever want to fucking own it. I don't ever want to be comfortable. I don't ever want to be part of this, man. Like, that's not it. You can be doing it, but also apart from it. And that's, so, no, that's... I don't feel, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's... I don't feel part of it. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we, there's the, the term imposter syndrome that gets thrown out yeah. quite a bit. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it, it's, it's kind of interesting in speaking with you. I, I definitely feel that you 
you know, you are understanding of your station, but you're also understanding of who you are, which is, is right. pretty respectable. So and I think that's the thing. I think we all feel imposter syndrome. The thing is a lot of people try to cover it up or flex over it. And then you become as, or you just like embrace that shit. We have a thing real quick. And I am punishing you with a long answer with uh, our, uh, someone, um, we have a lot of, uh, someone in a crew had gone up and apologized. She said to someone, Hey, could you do this? They hadn't done it. She went back and said, Oh, I'm sorry. Um, maybe you didn't hear, but can you, can you do this thing? And then she came back and she was just like, yo, I need to stop apologizing. And I was like, well, one thing women need to stop apologizing the world for sure. But on our set, I'm like, when you apologize to me, I know what you're saying is, Hey, you're an idiot. You didn't do what I said. And then I apologize and becomes the apology is, is out of love and respect. So that's what we don't, we just need to get rid of people who think apologies are weakness. Like our set apologies should be, yes, I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Like, yes, I'm sorry, but I'm so grateful to be there. So I think there's also that mentality of like, yeah, we all feel like imposters. This is all crazy. We get to do this. It's amazing. But at the same time, man, we're just fucked up and broken and trying to fucking tell our stories. <laughs> that's awesome. There's a, there's a video and, and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up now, but there's a video of you. That's a behind the scenes thing from, I think season one, where you said, uh, where I guess somebody off camera asked you, you know, who is Elgin James? And you're like, Oh man, you're like a fuck up. And, and that just that made me laugh so much. I was like, God, I love this guy. So yeah. Awesome. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I want to thank you. Yeah, I want to thank you for joining me for the Playlist Podcast. This has been a great, great discussion. And everybody, if you haven't seen Mayans, go watch Mayans. It's on FX on Hulu. Um, and yeah, it's great. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you, man. This has been so rad, man. I really appreciate yeah. it. Uh-huh.